For November 28th, 2011, it's the Overthinking It Podcast, episode 178, Monomenology. Welcome to the Overthinking It Podcast, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. I'm Matthew Rather, back from a time warp. Did you notice that in the intro of the last episode, I said that it was the year 2001? (laughs) I only noticed it once I had uploaded the show uh, already, and I wasn't going to do anything about it then. But but yes, Eagle Eye... uh, Uh, Eagle-eyed listeners pointed it out to me in the comments, specifically uh, Pasteur pointed it out. Uh, Time travel, he said in the first comment on the uh, Overthinking It uh, podcast show notes for that episode. But we're back here in 2011, here to discuss the Muppets. Uh, But first, um, we have uh, panelist Tim Swan visiting again from England. How are you, Tim? Uh, yeah, I'm good. I guess it is more like being a special guest tonight because I've gone out and done some reporting. Um, I'm sorry, I, not special guest, special correspondent. <laughs> uh, yes, Timothy I've taken Swan. a quick break from scrumping to uh, have a look at some, uh, or at least one, video game. Uh, and also, the Muppets movie doesn't come out here till February the 17th, so... <laughs> right! You went and got yourself thrown out of a special scrumping unit! <laughs> Yeah, I got busted back down to beating the mean streets of uh, brand new MMO Star Wars The Old Republic. Right. Well, we'll hear more about that in a second after the uh, question of the week. So, first, uh, I want to tell you a little bit about our sponsor. Yes, we have one, and it's us. (laughs) It's the holiday season. It is uh, present buying time, and we at the podcast, NetOverthinkingIt.com, would appreciate it if you would buy your presents through Overthinking It. We have an Amazon affiliate link, uh, you know, on the homepage. We have some special guest um, we have some, uh, not guest recommendations, we have some special overthinker recommendations. Uh, we have a gift guide up with, um, you know, with various options that are recommended by the overthinkers. I think uh, leading the pack right now actually is Harold McGee's On Food and Cooking. You see, I look at, I look at the stats. We can't see who you are, but we see, uh, you know, aggregate statistics. And... Um, uh, Harold McGee's On Food and Cooking is actually leading the pack in terms of, of purchases. Though, uh, not far behind Community Season 1 and my own uh, thing, which I thought nobody would buy, uh, Brunel Bettelheim's The Uses of Enchantment, The Meaning and Importance of Fairy Tales. But uh, more than anything else, apparently you overthinkers are interested in cooking. So you can find that at Overthinking It. You can find the Amazon.com affiliate link uh, on OverthinkingIt.com. And uh, short of a donation, that's the thing... Uh, that we would be most grateful to you for doing when you do all your holiday shopping online for the weekend. We know you have a choice of websites to support with Amazon affiliate links, and we're very <laughs> glad. <laughs> we're very glad that when you uh, that you know you kick that four percent pack to overthinkingit.com, uh, where we use it to pay for web hosting, podcast hosting, uh, and other things like that. And for Cyber Monday only, 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 only. We have a special deal, 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 deal on uh, The Overview, our series of alternative commentaries, downloadable alternative commentaries to some of your favorite movies. Uh, if you use the promotion code CM11, that's for Cyber Monday 2011, CM11, when you add them to your cart, uh, you can get all of our commentaries, all of our 
uh, you know, prize winning. Uh, they they won the prize that I just gave them. Uh, <laughs> overview commentaries for only a dollar, one U.S. greenback uh, per commentary. That's CM11, the offer code. You can get those uh, at overthinkingit.com slash store. So use our Amazon affiliate link and visit overthinkingit.com slash store. Uh, to get your commentaries at the lowest price ever. One thing about those, though, we had a uh, reader write in uh, and a listener write in uh, to the editor of Overthinking It, uh, which is us, (laughs) saying that not all of the videos are available on Amazon Instant, uh, Netflix Instant Streaming. Anymore, They take things uh, down, they put things up, the instant streams come, the instant streams go, you know, as Job said, the Lord giveth and the Lord hath taken away, um, the lords of Netflix, I suppose. So uh, make sure that you have access to the video that you want before you download it. I don't want anyone to be unpleasantly surprised when they, you know, turn on Netflix instant streaming and find, um, find that they don't have it there yet. So thanks very much to Overthinking It for sponsoring the Overthinking It podcast. Uh, we now return you to your regularly scheduled overthinking. Tim, Netflix instant streaming, is that something that has uh, made its way to England yet? Yes-ish. It just hasn't made its way to my house. Uh, I briefly have the equivalent to Netflix, a love film subscription, and our internet connection is too slow. Despite the fact we have a beautiful internet-ready TV with the app on, it just kind of stutters and breaks up. So we've been relying on good old-fashioned DVD delivery while it's still cheap. Because uh, they haven't raised the prices here quite yet. Yeah, that's coming. <laughs> I, will tell, uh, yes. I will tell you, Tim, here in the blazing fast United States, I have the same issue with instant streaming. So it's it might not be a continental thing so much as just a issue with the service and the infrastructure and possibly your choice of media. Who knows? Uh, I think it is to do with infrastructure and the local newspaper is constantly reporting improvements. It's like, well, really? Yeah, improvements. Um, what well, I would if say get, is... If you're getting if, those reports through the local newspaper, I would have called... <laughs> yeah, <but. laughs> I, I was going to say, I, I know the editor. It's, he's a fine guy, so I trust them about, you know, the local business. <laughs> um, if you are going to try and watch uh, an overview, let me assure you that it is even possible to do it with one you've recorded off commercial television. Uh, but you just have to be very quick on pausing and then fast-forwarding the advert break and then pressing play again. It requires a great deal of hand-eye coordination. Excellent. All right, into the question of the week in honor of the Muppet movie, which we'll be talking about uh, in a little bit uh, when we're joined by a couple more overthinkers, one of whom is actually watching the Muppet movie right now. Uh, The question is... Uh, with respect to Stadler and Waldorf, who do make uh, a few appearances in the Jason Siegel written Muppet movie, um, with respect to them, why do they keep coming back? They seem to hate the show. They have nothing but uh, bad things to say about it. But um, why? Why? So why are they there? You know, I, I, I wonder, and I wonder if you have an answer. The first person to have an answer, drink, because it's Matthew Belinky. <laughs> uh, why do they always come there? Uh, I think this has to do with class. That Statler and Waldorf are named after two very upper crust, uh, blue blood New York City hotels, the Statler Hilton and the Waldorf Astoria. And if you think about the Muppet Show, it is sort of like a very blue collar, 
almost like you know a, a, a retro entertainment. I mean, it's 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 a cabaret. It's really vaudeville, right? That you have like a host and he introduces like a magic show and then a song and dance number and then you know special guest host. And so it's 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 kind of like you know it's it's very much a working class thing. And also, I, I think it's it's important to keep in mind and maybe Tim can provide us some perspective here. The Muppet Show is uh, English. Actually, it it was um, could not get financing in the United States, and it was a a, a British uh, financier uh, provided the money, and Jim Henson moved the entire um, like like all his puppeteers to England, and all the episodes were produced overseas. And I feel like there is a little of this sort of British feeling that like there's these there's these uh, upper crust rich. Um, you know, hoity-toity guys in the balcony, and they're sort of turning up their nose at this sort of like um, very body working class entertainment, but at the same time, maybe secretly enjoying it. Um, so, I mean, I guess the, the simple answer Hello? is that they, they always come there because they like it. Um, Excellent. But, yeah. <laughs> they just they can't bring themselves to admit it because their they're, they're, they're friends in the House of Peers would make fun of them. John Parrish, you are next in the alphabet. What up? All right. So I have a a much more straightforward interpretation, namely that Statler and Waldorf are the directors of The Muppet Show. While Kermit is the host and producer, Statler and Waldorf are the directors and perhaps even the owners of the theater. So as opposed to traditional theater productions where the director will give notes at the end of the show, uh, Statler and Waldorf are giving notes during the show. They are. It's actually much, much more helpful if you think about it. Really? Yeah, because you can you can improve in the moment. You can improve uh, ad hoc, and so yeah, they're all about constructive criticism, really. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. So they're just they're just coaching, you know, Fozzie and Gonzo and and Kermit along the best way they know how, and uh, and yeah, that's that's really all there is to it. They're just they're just helpful, very avant garde directors. You know, you can tell by their by the balcony they sit in, and uh, and their of course their stylish clothes, which you know all directors in the theater are known for dressing stylishly, and yeah, that's it. Uh, Tim Swan, you get a place in the normal uh, in the normal uh, you know roundup this time. Yeah, it's going to be one of those weird sequencing ones. Uh, I think it's to do with the increasing isolation of the elderly in our society that uh, Statler and Waldorf have kind of carried on through life and they've lost a lot of their contemporaries and they only really have each other. I'm not quite sure how keen on each other they are, except that they can have this rapport and they can come together and be somewhere with a little bit of life and vibrancy. And they feel alienated from the youth as exemplified by the Muppets, but they'd rather be alienated and with a whole bunch of people and with each other than uh, to feel um, left out in the kind of loneliness of their likely poor accommodation. Is that too dark? No, that, that, that makes sense. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't have a complete list of Statler and Waldorf burns off the top of my head. I mean, if you give me a minute, I'll consult Wikipedia and find, you know, complete list of Statler and Waldorf burns or, or wherever it is. But I, I do recall every now and then one of them will work in references to the others, you know, oh, your wife's cooking, or something like that. So it's, it's clear in context that they don't necessarily like each other that much, but they are, as you say, united in their disdain for the show they're watching. Well, I, I would only suggest that maybe, like it seems many British males, the only way they can express their affection is through, uh, to use an unpleasant word, banter. 
but uh you know that makes sense. maybe that makes they sense. are kind of part of this kind of emotionally stunted kind of male group who can only express the fact that they really do feel strong so i'm i'm, I'm positing either two kind of contrary theories either they only have each other because they're the only ones kind of left or they do like each other and they don't know how to kind of express it in a more emotionally helpful way that's the no no that's I'm, the, I'm, oh, sorry I'm with you, but yeah, I'd, I'd hate to be one of those guys who can't express his true feelings except through a humorous banter. Now, where's that blowhard rather going to jump in? <laughs> hey, speaking Whoa. of blowhards, um, <laughs> absolutely. No, while, while I am convinced by the homosociality uh, explanation of Sattler and Waldorf, I think that the real truth is much, much darker. Uh, Sattler and Waldorf are both uh, veterans of uh, the Korean War or Forgotten War, uh, who are double amputees, and they, in fact, cannot leave the, uh, they cannot leave the theater. So it's not that they come to the show. Really, the show comes to them. And in a, a kind of, you know, in a kind of hellish and nightmarish, uh, you know, um, re- repetition that they cannot uh, possibly, that they cannot possibly endure. Uh, it's, it's like some kind of torture to have to watch the show. And, and they know about torture because of their experience as POWs. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. Wow. So it's like well after the curtain falls and the lights go out, they're still there in the theater. <laughs> yeah, uh, th- you know, right, uh, hurling witty barbs at the void. That's dark. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> so, uh, wow, I drove that one right into the ground, didn't I? We have a couple more overthinkers joining us later, or one more at least, but uh, they're not here yet. So uh, we'll push right on. Muppets coming up later. But first, uh, Tim, you have some exciting news. You've, um, you've recently been uh, – you've had an NDA lifted off you, haven't you? You're, you're allowed uh, now to disclose. Yes, I am finally allowed to disclose that uh, I've been in the new Bioware, or first Bioware MMO RPG, Star Wars The Old Republic, which is just in open beta this week, which has been quite unpleasant for all of us who have been closed beta. It's like, load times? Lag? What are these things? Uh, but I'm going to get in a lot of trouble with my uh, podcast partner, Ben, because I've been going on about it on uh, my own show with him, and he hasn't been in the uh, closed beta. So, um, anyway, uh, but as I've been playing it, I've been getting acquainted with the look of the game, which is somewhat related to the previous games that were, you know, kind of solo single player RPGs, uh, but also very much influenced kind of by the kind of Clone Wars look. There's a Sith Lord who's very kind of Vaderish. There's a lot of it that very much looks like it's just kind of been copied and slightly modified from the films. And when I first saw you know, the promotional material for it and some of the screenshots. And I thought, oh, you know, they're just doing this for commercial reasons. They just want to sell it to people who aren't, you know, like me, the hardcore mega fan who understands its precise place in galactic history and the rest of it. But playing it, one, it quite throws a lot of kind of continuity and the story of that kind of ongoing saga of that period at you. But two, it's more than just, oh, let's make things familiar. It's more as if the Star Wars story is in fact an endless uh, Zoroastrian struggle between equally balanced light and dark. 
and light and dark have their incarnations throughout the generations that are always basically based on the same principles. That there'll always be Jedi and Republic, and they have their style of ships, and they have their style of armor, um, their weapons and that. And the Sith, again, have their appearance that is continuous through time, even as they rise and fall, each of them. They're kind of in this eternally recurrent battle that will go on and on forever. And I just thought that was a bit interesting, because it's not really what Star Wars the films is about. Now, Tim, uh, for people who aren't familiar with the Old Republic era, the main difference, it seems to me, is that there are a great number of Sith, that instead of being these one or two dark figures in the shadows sort of manipulating things, there are probably an equal number of good Jedi and bad Jedi having massive lightsaber battles. Yeah, very much so. Basically, kind of the story up to that point was, yeah, there have been essentially equal Jedi versus Sith battles for like 500 years or so, and then a whole kind of hidden tribal army of Sith finally broke out and defeated much of the Republic, conquered about half the galaxy, so it split basically evenly, got to Coruscant, the Copital world, and stopped there, signed a treaty that gave them control of half the galaxy. So they've been in this kind of Cold War state. Uh, and in fact, they're, you know, they're calling it a Cold War. So there's kind of proxy conflicts. There's not that much Jedi versus Sith battling at this point, just as, you know, the game is getting started story-wise. It's just about to kind of break into something. But it's very significant that both sides have parity. It's not... There is no underdog, really. They're two titanic superpowers uh, with various kind of smaller nations that are in interrelationship with them, either by kind of trying to play both sides or trying to curry favor with one or the other, but the other side is then trying to oppose them. It is so it's a lot more geopolitical in that sense. Yeah, because the tone of the of the films, both the both the original series and the prequel, it's always been one of the dominant power versus the guerrilla underdogs. In the first series, it was the dominant empire versus the rebellion. And in the second series, it was the dominant republic versus the saboteurs among the Sith. But I guess for the sake of an MMO, where you have to present some choice between two sides to give players, you know, different teams to sign up for different tribes and the us versus them mentality that makes the MMO go, you would have to create some sort of, I guess, strategic parody, as you describe. Yeah, but I guess it is interesting. Uh, I have been talking about it a bit, and it seems that the certainly for the original trilogy, it's really kind of the American War of Independence is the kind of analogy. There's these kind of, at least in the mythos, plucky underdogs against this great empire, and you can see it even in the accents of the characters, for example, very much. The Imperials have clipped British accents and the rebels tend to be more Americans. And actually that has been reflected again in the old Republic. Pretty much every Sith character is played by a British or at least played with a British voice. Um, although they seem to be relatively convincing some of the more working class ones, uh, less so, uh, perhaps unsurprisingly. And, you know, most <laughs> Republic Jedi have American voices. So that's quite interesting. Obviously as a British person, you know, wanting to play on the light side, at least uh, to start with, it's interesting to kind of think that, okay, the people who are more similar to the way I speak are is in fact, you know, uh, an imperial uh, secret agent who's doing diabolical things, uh, even without the use of the force. But 
Well, that Whereas, actually yeah. does, does raise the issue that not every character is a Jedi. Not everybody has a lightsaber. You can choose to play in other roles, right? Yeah, very much so. And those other roles basically fit into, I guess, a few characters. The Republic side has a smuggler who is essentially like a Han Solo archetype. There's a trooper who is very much like the kind of tough clone troopers, especially those you get in the Clone Wars like uh, Rex and Cody. And uh, on the other side, the Imperial agent doesn't really have an analogy in the Star Wars films. They're, you know, they're a spy and there aren't that many kind of Imperial spies doing their thing. Um, And then finally, a bounty hunter who is very much the Boba Fett top, top hunter analog. So they all technically, I suppose, have parity going head to head because obviously Jedi kind of by birth on the top of their game and the others by their training are very much at the top of their game in a galactic war but i guess i would hope that some of the storylines are a bit kind of you know john le carré that there is betrayal and intrigue between the intelligence forces because they are really the only ones going up against each other it is a cold war you know everything's for using proxies and other battlefields and trying to influence the people who haven't picked a side, which I think is uh, an interesting analogy and how many people of my generation who were born basically after the Cold War ended who are going to be playing it, who are going to get that. Um, I don't know. Maybe you shouldn't expect a story's references to be gotten for a story to be good, but... As a a player in the the beta, have you found a lot of other people taking non-Jedi roles? Because uh, from my understanding of Star Wars Galaxies which was not Bioware's, but the last try at a sort of Star Wars MMO, that was one of the main points of contention, where in, where in Star Wars Galaxies, if I recall correctly, you couldn't be a Jedi straight out. You had to start as a base class and sort of level up, and then you had the option of becoming a Jedi if you followed a certain path. And then I think later, when membership was starting to flag, they just let anyone start as a Jedi, and that you know created some sort of minor internal dissent, and then Star Wars Galaxies sort of fell by the wayside. So what's what's the distribution of classes that you've seen in play? Uh, it's kind of hard to tell because at the starting levels, the classes don't tend to have missions on the, in the same place. So certainly I created a bounty hunter, hunter character uh, and there was an awful lot of people playing bounty hunter and imperial agent uh, at that time, there w- it wasn't like a barren waste, that particular planet, where no one was picking that class. But certainly, it does seem like there's a lot of Jedi. Um, and I imagine there's a lot of Sith, but I haven't spent much time on the Sith world yet. Uh, certainly, there's that kind of attachment. But I guess what it's interesting that there's been articles about class and build uh, on the site. That was you, wasn't it, John? But uh, that, because uh, yes, that's sweet, yeah. I, I did only read that like yesterday. The differences in the characters is, you know, the Jedi fulfill certain categories of the MMO archetypes and the other classes fit into the other ones. So I don't think people are going, oh, I want to be a Jedi. I want to be a Sith. I think they're coming in it less as kind of Star Wars fans and more as MMO players and going, oh, I want to be a tank. I want to be a ranged DPS, uh, which doesn't really appeal to me. And actually, my last thing I did before having a quick nap was I was doing a group thing and they were like, well, because my character can do a little bit of healing, had brought me along because they couldn't find anyone else. And I was getting quite angry in a way because they wanted to play it like 
an MMO. Everyone has their set constrained role. And I guess I was more into, well, let's play it like more like the role playing element. And I guess I hadn't really contrasted before the kind of MMO optimization play by the rules that kind of came out of World of Warcraft. Uh, I think more than any other, you know, you have your tank, your DPS, your healer, and whatever the fourth one is supposed to be, and you follow your roles, and you stick to your roles uh, kind of relentlessly, Uh, whereas the RPG element says, oh, well, you're a band of uh, Jedi and plucky heroes working together for the good of the galaxy, you know, go and do this mission for the, you know, Jedi Grandmaster. Um and obviously, in terms of optimizing gameplay, you probably shouldn't really care that it's a Star Wars game, because if you start doing things that are kind of strategically not that clever, then you're all going to die. Whereas my approach to it, I guess because I come as it more of a Star Wars it's the first MMO, well, apart from the Battlestar Galactica free-to-play MMO that I've done. So I'm there like, yeah, I'm a Jedi. How would I approach this situation as a Jedi? Um and I hadn't really thought how actually those two impulses really don't go with one another at all. And maybe they should stop, well, as they are, stop calling them RPGs and come up with some name that encompasses the sort of gameplay, but not the way you play it. It's kind of psychologically, I guess, the mindset you come in with. You know, I'm, I'm curious. I've, I've actually never played an MMO, but I would guess that what makes this different than, let's say, like a previous Bioware game, um, Star Wars Knights of the Old Republic, which is set in a similar era, is that this is, of course, online with many other people. So how is that handled? Like, do you really need to team up with other people and communicate and work in large groups, or can you pretty much play it on your own if you want? You could play all of the main quests and all of the kind of key story elements of each class, because each class each class is said to have a story about as long as the average Bioware game, which, if you yeah. think about it, is a huge amount of work, you know, because there's eight classes currently. That's eight Mass Effects, you know, uh, going yeah. there. And it is more similar to Mass Effect than KOTOR, if only because the updated kind of conversation mechanics and stuff, which is very much the same as in Mass Effect, uh, with your three obvious emotional responses, which means that you spend the whole time clicking the same one if you're playing a good character, essentially. <laughs> but uh, um, if you do that in a group, they do have group conversation, but it's not really a dialogue so much as you all metaphorically, well, not metaphorically, you electronically roll the dice. Whoever wins the roll gets to choose the course of action for the next stage of the conversation. But I finally did one. I've been playing with all these kind of goody two-shoes players. And so we'd all been agreeing on the happy light side options the whole time. And I finally did one where there was a guy who wanted, you know, to accept a bribe and I wanted to refuse a bribe. And I was kind of expecting that there'd be some kind of dialogue disagreement. And there wasn't. I just got given, you know, the light side points and the reward that I would have got if I'd refused the bribe. Whereas he got the dark side points and the credits from receiving the bribe. Mm. Um, So I think they could go further on that. But then there are quests, you know, side quests, and then kind of group events, which is more like, I guess, dungeons, dungeon raids, um, that need a group because it's just, or you need to be, you know, four times the expected level for that. Yeah, um, and is that is that fun? <clears throat> Sorry, is that fun to team up and have to work together? It's been surprisingly fun. I think it's yeah. been fun to play with people who are quite, who are the Star Wars fans who are quite naive about the game. 
because you kind of muddle through, you have good fun. Uh, I guess because I've been on a British server, I've been all on with kind of uh, people who are in a relatively similar boat to me, uh, as it were, you know, the the few British people who have been in, were invited to the closed beta. So you kind of actually ran into similar faces, which I wouldn't expect to do on an online game, and it probably will stop happening now it's open. Yeah, you saw familiar people. It was like genuine kind of life society. It's like, oh, yeah, I recognize them. I've done a little thing with them. Okay, we're acquaintances now. We're friends. If we see each other, we'll feel fondly towards one another and maybe, you know, kill a few monsters together. But it's not essential. It's not required. You could you could play it alone. You could play it without being connected. If you could, you could play it without being connected to the internet. And you wouldn't lose that much of the experience except for some of the higher level quests and you could do those once you'd reached a high enough level anyway there's no no time where it's requires you to it's just times where you'll probably die if you don't and how is the story by the way that that um you know you mentioned it's a bioware game they're known for their writing so i mean are you really sucked in and, and waiting to see what your character's up to next uh, yeah, I think that the story is kind of the compelling element, uh, and the acting obviously is quite good um, because you've recorded all you know. You know, there's thousands of hours of dialogue recorded, um, and I think the brilliant thing about the conversation mechanic in Bioware is that you get a good look at your character's face uh, in dialogue. It makes you feel like you know them quite well. You spend this time kind of connecting with them as if you were observing them in conversation actually the story is quite compelling it's a bit kind of prone to the i guess not messianic archetype but certainly chosen one kind of thing you know the jedi i'm playing is the only one who can learn this old force technique that will save them from a sith plague the you know has always been a prodigal student who everyone already knows about even when they're a padawan and i've done the but of course like every single person playing as a jedi is getting the same story where they're, where they're all prodigies yeah, that is the interesting thing, is they haven't kind of suggested that you're one Jedi kind of doing one thing during this conflict, which I think they could have written a story that more suggested that. Instead, they are suggesting to every player that they are one of the many significant Jedi, you know, that they are second only to the Masters in the Jedi Council or something. And if you are the 13th best Jedi in the galaxy, and everyone is, then it is a bit ridiculous. There's not kind of a suggestion that you're yeah. just a good one you right, that you're just a like a foot one. soldier and there are thousands of people involved in this conflict that you are the axle upon which the whole universe yeah. is revolving so really uh, the story and the idea of it being an mmo are kind of disconnected it would be more accurate to think of it as a single player game that happens to be online i think is that I, I mean I wonder if that's an unusual situation for an MMO. Most of them are more focused on the the communal aspects. Yeah, I I guess if it wants to be the strongest story based one, in order to have that, you have to have a hook. And maybe the psychology of the players is they don't want to play a game where they're not the most important person in the world. Um. And there's some research I was uh, reading the other day on account of Felicia Day, everyone's favorite girl gamer. Uh, I'm sure that's a term that she would hate. Uh, talking, she actually posts quite often psychology of gaming articles on her Google+. Plus. She's about the only person who seems to be using it effectively. Um, and talking about how our avatars and our player characters are, an, are idealized selves. 
that they're the sort of person we would like to be. We'd like to be that heroic. We'd like to be that strong. We'd like to be that capable. And so if you are just the, even the ordinary Jedi, then maybe that's not what people want to play because as much as I think, you know, if you thought about it, the idealized self might be an ordinary Jedi. They, they want to really be start kind of pushing them along because it makes their self-esteem improve. It makes them feel like, yeah, maybe I could, if faced with a tough situation, be called upon to be the one and only. But that's, uh, that sort of cuts both ways, right? Like my avatar is, I wish I could be that evil as well. Yeah, certainly. You know, there are plenty of kind of depraved and horrible choices that you could make in a bioware game uh you know actually the morality is still very much the binary kind of thing you can either be light or dark and you're often presented with options where it's like do something immensely morally upright and do something like genuinely horrible and no in between you know there's not much shades of gray in that so yeah clearly you've got to ask in these games that offer you and well I hesitate to say immoral choice, but a dark choice. Is that really saying something about the person? The reason I tend to play light characters is that my, you know, I used to play a lot of video games with my younger brother, and he would play the dark side and I would play the light side, and we'd kind of do it as that kind of social gaming and whatever, taking in turns, so that we'd cover the whole thing. Is he kind of the dark side of the family and my the light side? I'm not sure that that's the case. But only, clearly... Only time will tell. Well, yes, I suppose if he comes back with a beard uh, looking like, you know, the whatever mirror universe version of me, I'm sorry, I'm not a Trek person. I'm a Star Wars person, as is evident. But, uh, you know, then I'll know that he has finally gone to the dark side. Sorry, I thought that to have some kind of epic duel. I thought that was going to be a uh, I thought that was going to be a community uh, joke. Uh, Oh, yes. Evil Evil evil. Troy and evil Arbed. (laughs) And the and the thing. Well, uh, thanks very much for bringing to us your, um, your you know, report from the closed beta, or beta, as you say, of the, uh, of the Star Wars. <laughs> yes, I'm not sure what the original Greek should be. Uh, <laughs> I was saying before I was allowed to say anything, the one thing that I put on the internet was that my favorite Greek letters were now uh, beta, closely followed by tau, omicron, and uh, rho. That was my cryptic thing. I don't think I got busted, because I'm not sure how many people in Bioware know their uh, Greek alphabet and go searching the internet for references to it. Uh, All right. Well, we are... uh, We'll be right back with uh, a little news from the Muppet movie with uh, everyone's favorite podcaster, Peter Fenzel. Welcome back. We have Pete Fenzel with us. Pete, welcome to the podcast. Hey, it's great to be back. It is great to be back, and it is great to be home. This is a good situation. <laughs> well, we were while we were recording the first segment, you were traveling uh, by bus, I think, on the busiest travel day of the year. How was that for you? Uh, there will come a day when the public transportation of man fails. But it is not this day. <laughs> this day we fight. Yeah, no, it was it was brutal. But you know, we got lots of fun stuff to talk about. So I don't want to drag you guys down with stories of McDonald's on the side of the road and three hour waits in the Port Authority bus terminal. <laughs> so, yeah. Don't don't drag us down with that story. Um, Pete, I, we're going to make you answer the same question that we all answered. Why do Statler and Waldorf uh, continue to come to the Muppet Show? Why do they keep going to the, to the show? Yep. Uh, is it sort and, of like and you you you've not had the benefit of hearing any of the answers that come before so one of us will be immensely gratified if you uh if you unwittingly pick the answer that we've already given okay um 
I mean, part of me wants to say that it's that they're just gluttons for punishment, right? They've got this like masochistic streak. They're in this codependent, abusive relationship, right? And it's just this. <laughs> not every, not every between time, themselves, was, but but with them in the Muppet Show. No, they have a sadomasochistic relationship between themselves behind closed doors, but uh, with <laughs> yeah. the show, they have like a codependent, enabling relationship. Um, another part of me wants to say like, "Whoa, there's a door that goes out!" Whoa, 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 whoa. like someone, <laughs> let, you know, that's that sort of thing. Um, yeah. Also, you know what? Uh, retirement age keeps getting pushed back in this country um, because of issues with uh, the markets. So they probably had a whole bunch of 401k that tanked, and they had to come out of retirement to come back to the Muppet Show. Uh, it's better than being a Walmart. Reader, that's for sure. <laughs> wait until they wait, <laughs> wait until their investments recover. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So I don't know if anyone was made happy by that, but um, you know, I'm sure there's a child somewhere who's yeah. smiling. I think the list. I think the listeners were uh, were okay. made happy by that. Now, um, can can I begin the conversation by by positing something? I, for me, the Muppet movie was two hours of pure joy and childlike wonder, uh, but. But let me say that for for a uh, almost kind of relentlessly happy movie, it was also very wistful and had kind of a a um, had kind of a sad undertone that I found a little a little unusual for the Muppets, where the uh, the kind of the for whom the sort of zany madcap uh, quality is not not usually undercut. Um, you know, uh, by this kind of wistful sadness. It may not be easy being green, but it's not all that depressing either. (laughs) I mean, I don't know about that. The Muppets have, have, in all of their incarnations, have flirted with that level of stark sublimity. Um, All the way from the the Follow That Bird movie has lots of sad moments, right? And The the first Muppet movie is very bleak at points. Gonzo sings that whole song about, I'm going to go back there someday. And it's very, you know, like, and and it it's, it does have this sort of feeling about like, um, I I I don't know about like how like how like life is uncertain and fleeting, and your friends are what what makes it uh, a beautiful thing. But you know what? Yeah. The, okay, so so I buy that, and and but the thing I think this movie added was the aspect of regret. And I've kind of regret yeah. for decisions made a long time ago and how your life has played out since you sort of made that decision, since you made that mistake. The idea that, like, Kermit is – and, you know, blanket spoiler alert. You, My God, yeah. you should see it anyway. But um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> There are Muppets. They put on a show. Right. <laughs> it's called The Muppet Movie. Like, you yeah, know, exactly. Jason Siegel and Amy Adams get married at the end. Uh, there's, right. a, there's a hidden Mickey in the fireworks – uh, reminding you that Disney owns the 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 Muppets now. Uh, <laughs> oh, right. Okay. Um, when you tilt up to the when you tilt up to the fireworks show at the end of the movie, there's a hidden Mickey. There are three fireworks <laughs> that go off in a Mickey uh, shape uh, at the same time. Ah, uh, good old Disney subliminal messages. Yeah, like looming um, over, like in the yeah. sky, like 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 Mufasa at the end of the line. <laughs> <laughs> Everything the light touches is my kingdom. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so right. Um, this this movie picks up though you know like years after the last Muppet movie and the Muppet Show and it's we're gonna kind of have to sort a little bit out uh, what the rules of this universe are like which of the previous Muppet entertainment properties exist in the Muppet movie uh, you know diegetic universe and which don't but. Mm-hmm. Um, 
it it takes place sometime after, and the Muppets star has waned, and they are they're no longer famous. They're all in. They're all you know dispersed to the four winds. And you know Kermit is very sad that like he couldn't uh, he couldn't tell Miss Piggy that he loved her. You know back in back in the day. And so this this aspect of kind of not being. Um, it's not just that, that happiness is fleeting and you got to grab it with your friends, but it's, uh, it's that like, look, you know, you, you get one roll of the dice and, uh, you could be, you could be sad for a long time. You could be lonely for a long time, uh, if you don't do it right. And that seems to change the stakes in, in the Muppet movie, which, you know, for being sort of childlike, they were concerned with the the kind of immediate moment but they're now like they have this added perspective of kind of looking past over uh looking past uh, looking back on a pa- on a life lived and not always loving every decision that they've yeah. made that's also right. very that's also a very meta consideration isn't it i mean you know the the muppets themselves their star has waned since their peak in the i guess late 70s early 80s what have you so is that it, it, this is kind of a, a feeding question, but is that sort of a, a consideration that's addressed within the movie? The sort of meta aspect, oh, the Muppets are on the decline, as evidenced by you know the fact that the Muppets are on the decline. Yeah, I mean it is. Yeah. It, I, I mean I think the movie is right on the nose about that about its treatment of that question. There, there are many many jokes about how the Muppets are no longer popular. My 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 favorite is actually a, a, a kid comes up to Kermit and says, "Aren't you one of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles?" And without missing a beat or hesitating in any way, he just says, "Yes, I am." <laughs> it's the kid. So it's I mean it's funny. All those people are. Uh, like very from, young yeah, well, Disney stars, right? Yeah, like Selena Gomez is one of the the celebrity cameos. The kid from um uh that's the kid from Modern Family, right? Which is on Oh, ABC, oh yeah. ABC. Well, Selena Gomez's line is great. She's like, "I don't know who you are. My agent just told me to come here." And it's literally like her only line in the entire movie. Right? She never like apologizes for yeah. it. Or, like, no, 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 she to- says she says mana mana. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, here's but here's the counterpoint, right? On one hand, the Muppets as an entertainment phenomenon exist in our current entertainment landscape. I love to get an image of that top 100 entertainment cool trends things that uh, the lady from the office has in her office, like right. the yeah. the things they think are awesome. And she has um, like a big bullseye with with things in pop culture to show how popular they are, and then yeah. she has to fold out sort of like several different addendums to it to show how far outside the bullseye the Muppets are at this point. <laughs> Exactly. But on the other hand, the Muppets have so affected like existence and humanity that there are people now who are born Muppets, right? Like, 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 <laughs> like it's like it, it, this, this struck me when I was thinking, I was thinking about this. Uh, it's so, it's so existential because the Muppets have sort of created a new way of understanding existence. And if you're one of those people who's like intrinsically a Muppet at this point, like in your nature, it's sort of like Kierkegaard and the Knight of Faith or whatever. Where it's like, I can't deny that this is part of who I am, right? Like I am a Muppet. And, and so it's not just that I'm a fan of the Muppet. It's like inborn into my, into my very like body into my my the physical substance of who i am um which is strange because part of it is like you know oh we're going to acquire your intellectual property and part of it is like we're not really going to explain the messy process by which humans give birth to think puppets well, that are never acknowledged because well, yeah, okay, his brother is human isn't yeah, he exactly his yeah. brother, brother is jason seagal but yeah seagal seagal or seagal as yeah. you say yeah, let's let Matt. Matt He's Steven, Matt. Steven's son, right? <laughs> Steven's son, Jason. Yes. This is. I think this is a very interesting decision that the main characters are um, 
these these two guys who who I can only think of as uh, Jason Siegel uh, and Walter, and they're brothers, and they they grow up together, and uh, they're never nothing is ever referred to as as them being like one of them is being adopted, but one of them is a a puppet, one of them is in fact a Muppet. Uh, but you know everything about their. You know the, we see them in the same class together in the same class photo. Just one of them is a Muppet, um, and you know they grow up watching the Muppet Show and they both love it. But interestingly enough, the one who actually is a Muppet loves it loves it more. Uh, but he certainly doesn't refer to himself as a Muppet because in this in the context of the movie, the Muppets are a group of performers. They are a group of actors who do the Muppet Show and other movies. Um, and so he certainly doesn't think of himself as a Muppet. And yet the fact that he's made out of felt, it's interesting that I read something online that that said that being a Muppet could be could be read as sort of a metaphor for being gay. That the idea is like okay. he's been a Muppet all along. He's just never really had the courage to see. He's identified with the Muppets when he felt sort of like left out and awkward growing up. But he's never had the courage to, to come out and say it. He's never even dreamed that like he could be accepted by the Muppet community one day. They do like musical theater. Yeah. <laughs> well, but that phenomenology or monomenology, as I like to call it, <laughs> um, it cuts across to a lot of different uh, self-identifi- self-identifying elements of adolescence. I mean, certainly being gay is the big one and the one that is most sort of politically relevant to us now. But even if it's like, oh, I'm a musician, like, or like, oh, I love board games, right? Or like, you know, I, I, uh, I, I'm actually a runner and I never knew it, and this is what I love. There is an element of self-discovery through adolescence. Where people do sort of like live with this situation where everybody else can see a little bit of who they really are, but they don't really know enough about themselves yet or have the confidence to assert themselves yet to really claim it, right? Like, um, like you know, we were all overthinkers when we were like seven, um, I'm sure, but uh, we didn't actually reach out and seize that opportunity until a tearful montage with Molly Ringwald, like pretty late in the game, whose name is crossed out in the Muppet movie as like no longer a celebrity available to host the Muppet show, which is very sad. And this yeah, is- there is a harsh moment has been, Kermit, been, Kermit sort of crosses him off his list. <laughs> and there's been something that's been true of the Muppets for at least the extent of their movie career. I mean, I'm thinking back to the Muppets Take Manhattan, where they end up staying in Manhattan in this sort of dingy rundown. I think they're like squatting in in an abandoned building. They're staying in the point. lockers at Port Authority, I think, because they're small. <laughs> and, and, yeah, they're, and there's the, the original Muppet movie where they're taking a road trip across country in a van rather than, you know, flying or some other form of transport. And whenever they're introduced to members of a higher class, like I'm, I'm thinking of the great Muppet caper at this point where they meet Diana Rigg and there's the whole diamond thing, you know, the upper class are always humans, but, you know, they're at best working middle class. Class as Muppets, so they've always been sort of a a subaltern class or race. So uh, that that's that's not new to this movie. So yeah, they're, they're a class, they're not a race. Because I I was listening to a, uh, an interview with with Jason Segal or Segal as the British say, and um, uh, Nicholas Stoller, who is his his uh, writing partner on Forgetting Sarah Marshall, and who who directed Get Him to the Greek, and you know who is this sort of co-writer of this movie with Jason Siegel. Um, and, and they said that, like, when they were getting Muppet schooled by the, you know, old Muppeteers, um, they said that, uh, you know, existentially, Miss Piggy is a pig. Kermit is a frog. You know what I mean? They're not, a sep- they're not puppets, you know, and they're not a, a separate, separate sort of class. They actually are the thing that they represent. Right. And so in this movie, Walter is a person. He is not a puppet, and the fact that he's yeah, the fact that the that he's made out of felt is sort of incidental to, uh, is incidental to to you know his 
what existential position, but uh, is is a signifier that he really doesn't belong in the in yeah. small town USA, but, well, but but belongs on the Muppet ship from, well, from an existential. Are, okay, go ahead. Sorry. Well, then what are the the Muppets who don't have a I guess contemporary world analog like Gonzo or Snookums or Snuffleupagus? Like, I what, think they're monsters, right? Like in the Sesame Street sense. I mean, they don't really flesh it out all that. I mean, I think Gonzo's an alien because they fleshed that out in some yeah, of the properties. I believe Gonzo's that's canon right. now. Yeah, that like, Gonzo's actually from space. <laughs> Muppets from Space, by the way, is a very good movie. Not Muppets in Space, but Muppets from Space, which is very different. I love Ray Liotta's cameo in that movie as the security guard who's very happy to see them. Um, and that's also the movie, I think, that introduced King Prawn, who makes a wonderful appearance in a dirty dancing sequence in this movie. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, there's, yes, there's usually relations to there. But also to, to talk about the classes of Muppets, just the quick rundown, this Muppet movie only really includes the Muppets from The Muppet Show. It doesn't reference the Muppet Babies. It doesn't reference Sesame Street, either old school Sesame Street or new school Sesame Street. You know, there's no Elmo in there and there's no Big Bird, right? There's also no – there are also no human beings who coexist with Muppets as part of their everyday life, which is something that happens a lot in some of the other Muppet pro- properties. Like there's no diner waitress who hangs out with Kermit, right? Like, there's, like, the television producer, but that's somebody who comes in the game late in the game. But that also means there's no Gordon. Siegel and Amy Adams. Well, yeah, but they they don't – I guess. And they're sort of the representatives because they don't actually act like strict human beings either. Like, they're aware of the fact that they're in a movie, right? And uh, and so they have a different – Right. There's there's breaking of the fourth wall, but that's consistent. The Muppets always do that. Yeah, that's true. That's true. They always have little nods at the fact that – You know, it's funny. Like, it is kind of like uh, they have their own, like, Tyler Perry thing going on where it's like it's Muppet-owned and (laughs) Muppet-operated. Matt, uh, African-American people are real. (laughs) Like, like they really exist. What what I'm saying is that they've set up a means of production outside the mainstream. (laughs) Are you saying they're Fumboom? Like four Muppets by Muppets? Is that what this is? Fumu. They they have nothing to lose but their operators. Sorry, I hear means of production. It's just a reflex now. There are no, yeah, there are no, uh, there are no operators. There are no puppeteers. The Muppets, you know, and you actually, you see, I think it's like the, the very limited use of CGI in this movie is to show you full body Muppets, um, you know, like erasing, digitally erasing the puppeteers. There's, you know, it's, it's very old fashioned, uh, in, in most respects uh, in terms of its, in terms of its production. And the rigs that they used in the first Muppet movie for the bicycle sequence to show Kermit and Miss Piggy in full, full full force were, like, very elaborate, right? Like, with the glass rods and the way that it was set up. So um, yeah. I don't begrudge them, like, a couple of splash Although scenes. Although, technically, just, just so nobody well actually is us, that's the Great Muppet Caper that they have the bicycle oh. sequence. You know, I always – you know, I saw the Great Muppet Caper first of all the Muppet movies when I was a kid. So I always think of it as the, the Muppet movie, right? I it's a little think more Charles accessible. The, the Muppet movie yeah. is, like, a little more adults – and yeah, yeah. kind of, it's hard to, and it, of course, very meta in itself because it ends with a sequence showing them making the very movie which we just saw. Right. Well, here, you know, I mean, you, you know, it's weird is that you, you do get the sense that the Muppets in all their things exist both as characters on the screen and also as actors sort of like playing themselves. And at any moment, they could sort of pull back the curtain and address the camera. And in fact, I, I was reminded of it because um, in the Great Muppet Caper, there's a great sequence where Miss Piggy is getting very emotional and Kermit sort of breaks character to accuse her of overacting. And they sort of like uh, they, they sort of go back and forth about like, you know, her performance. Uh, and then he's like, look, 
I'm sorry, let's have this argument later. We got to finish the movie. And you sort of have this feeling that even in this movie, even though I don't think any of the main Muppets really break the fourth wall in, 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 in such an obvious way, there is a sense that Kermit is an actor. And in this movie, he's playing himself trying to make a comeback by, like, you know, you know, clawing his way back to the top in Hollywood. So there, there, there's there's a very sort of meta, sneak-eating-its-own-tail feeling to the whole thing. Muppets I mean, I guess, I guess that is uh, fitting, because the director is one of the guys involved with the Flight of the Concords HBO series, and indeed the music is by uh, Brett McKenzie, one half of Flight of the Concords. And that whole show, again, was, like, by getting a HBO comedy, the band had made it to America, and yet, all oh, the show is all about them going to America and trying to make it, and how difficult that is. And yes. in the end, when the series kind of ends, they get sent away and sent back to New Zealand. Um, you know, th- there was always that tension between the two band members and then the two characters, and they have the same names, and they have like similar stories running through each version because they had a radio series version, which again told some similar stories. And I think clearly with the Muppets, they're telling some of the similar stories from the original, I guess, sequence of movies. But my generation are pretty much unfamiliar with that. Even as someone who I think, I, you know, I really do enjoy the Muppets a lot. I think I was a bit kind of freaked out by them as a kid. Uh, and I found, uh, uh, Bunsen very kind of freaking me out. So I never really liked the show as a kid. So the only movies of the Muppets that I've seen were Treasure Island and Christmas Carol. And so this movie, I guess you can't just retrot the original movies things in a way, because there's a whole generation who are vaguely Mm -hmm. aware of the Muppets uh, and aren't really sure. um, Yeah. You know, about that. But that tension, I think, is really significant. Mm. I definitely think that it was cool the way that the Flight of the Concords uh, dovetailed with what the Muppets were doing, and that kind of sh- like you could tell it was Brett's work from the, a lot of the songs. Okay. You could tell it was from him, but at the same time, it also fit, which also works with the way the Muppets work historically, where they bring in these big celebrity stars who inform with their stuff. But let's does anyone want to talk about the song specifically? Is there like a particular song people want to talk about? Because there's a couple that are pretty fun and cool. Um, yeah. I mean, I, th- I think the the one that's most interesting is is sort of like at the at, at the at the eleventh hour as they're approaching the big uh, telethon that that's either going to the Muppets are going to make enough money to to survive as an institution or their their big business will will overtake them and they'll have to disband <laughs> forever. Um, there's a, a Jason Siegel uh, forgets his tenth anniversary. It's actually interesting that that one of the plot points is this very very endlessly long engagement, sort of guys and dolls style. Never really gone into, although I suppose it, it mirrors the sort of Kermit Miss Piggy dynamic, right? That like he, he can never quite commit, even though he is, of course, very enamored of this woman. And they're sort of inseparable. He just never can kind of go that extra mile. But anyway, like she, she leaves uh, in disgust because he's paying more attention to the Muppets than her. She leaves him a note that says, "Are you man or are you Muppet? You have to decide." Right. Um, and then there, there is a song where where both Jason Segel and Walter uh, try to decide: Are they man or are they Muppet? And in Jason Segel's case, it means: uh, Am I going to go be with my girlfriend or am I going to support the Muppets in their hour of need? And in Walter's case, it's: Do I have the courage to? Form with the Muppets, or is my stage fright and insecurity too much? Um, and I mean, you know, based on the way she writes the note, you, your, your first rating is that being a Muppet is a bad thing, right? You know, it's, it's are, are you man or are you mouse? Um, right. But then, are you human or are you dancer? Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Dancers uh, are lame. No, no they're I don't not. Really think she means I mean, I think I think what she means is that like, are you more committed to me or are you more committed to the Muppets? Right. But then, then I think yeah. it becomes this meaningful existential question when they sing the song. 
Right. Well, because it's also there's also a big part of this movie that is somewhat critical of really dedicated Muppet fandom, um, and expresses it as almost like a as a as a um, cross to bear to an extent. Because Walter loves the Muppet Show, and he's sort of caught in this. They're both caught in this uh, Arrested Development. You never see their parents, right? Just in the measuring scenes, yes. you see their hands. But they still live in their childhood bedroom in these bunk beds that are next to each other, right? And and it's clear that neither of them has really grown up. And the movie yeah. is to an extent about them growing up. It's it's strange. I mean, just just as a side note, that like the best you can figure, the Muppet Show has got to be retconned so that it happened in the eighties, right? Because Jason Segel is what like early thirties, and so that like if they were really watching it and loving it growing up and making these videotape compilations of it, it can't have taken place in like the late seventies like it normally did because they'd be they'd be depressingly old now. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, even if you want to think of them as depressingly old, it all might, but it's, that's not how they're depicted. But yeah, but yeah. it is interesting. And I think what's interesting also is that it isn't really a choice. Like, you, you, there's a point where the, the man's Muppet side and the Muppet's man side sort of like coming to existence, and they go to this Harry Potter-esque kind of Elton John piano off in this like white area. It's like the white scene in the last Harry Potter movie with Dumbledore where they're in like the area between life and death, right? And it's like uh, – yeah. Am I going to go forward from here? There's like it's brought up the possibility that he could leave. Jason Siegel could leave as a, as a, his felt self, and Walter could leave as his awesome cameo self. That's true. Like you could almost see them switching and decide. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Maybe Jason Siegel's committed to the Muppets, and maybe Walter doesn't really have the stomach to to take that final leap and become one of the performers. Yeah. But at the same time, in the context of the rest of the movie, we all know which one is a, a, a human and which one is a Muppet because we can see it. Right, like yeah. we can see that Walter's made of felt. It wouldn't really be a satisfactory ending for them to switch. Really, it would be horrifying. <laughs> like, it would be absolutely <laughs> terrible if, like, Jason Siegel were to turn into a puppet and never get to talk to his girlfriend again. Like that would be wretched. Um, but it's but it's interesting because it's positioned dramatically as a choice, and yet it's really more of a moment of recognition than a moment of actual decision making. Um, where where it's like, who am I? Right? It's like, who, and you're asking this question of the world, and it's not like you get to say, okay, I'm going to be this person. Is that you're going to sort of like discover what the answer is outside of yourself, right? There's not that sense of your own personal yeah. agency in it, um, which is an interesting difference. That like you don't actually choose whether or not you like the Muppets; like they choose you, right? Like the Muppets chose all of us. And of course, Jim Henson isn't involved in the Muppet movie because he's passed on. And and you know, in that sense, I guess is Frank Oz even involved in this movie? Um, that's something that's that. Boring. I'm that's assuming that's surely, surely, surely he's doing the voice. Yeah. Well, what I would I say know. is let's, that let's no, check. We yeah, no, up. he's he's not right. Oh, oh really? Are you serious? Wow. Yeah, Miss Piggy is done by uh, no, it is done by Eric Jacobson, uh, who has done Miss Piggy for a while. But but you know, Frank Oz was yeah was uh, like we're saying was sort of critical of it of the movie. Oh, he, oh, that's he right. Was? Okay, yeah. yeah. Oh. He, ha- had he right, seen it? There was. <laughs> I don't know, but in in the script st- stage, it was it was kind okay. of a, it was a little scandal thing, like that. Like he apparently had a version of it that he, that he had written, and oh. Um, oh, okay, you know, it, and I don't think it's just sour grapes that the the Jason Siegel and uh, Nicholas Stoller um, uh, version. I, I you know I think a lot of those guys there are, there are a bunch of those guys who are like with Jim Henson. You know what I mean, yeah. and who have been like on that ride from the from the. Um, from the very beginning and mm-hmm. you know here's a new here's a new like new guard coming in with their forgetting sarah marshall penises and their you know 
what what have you and it's it's kind of i i actually thought it was kind of cleverly allegorized in the movie um the muppets are referred to as an entertainment property you know what i mean like it's not yeah. just that the evil oil baron is going to like tear down the orphanage or you know what drill for oil and destroy the muppet studio um which is on <laughs> which is in hollywood right next to the jimmy kimmel studio yeah. <laughs> which, I thought, which i thought was a, you know a fun touch it's not just that but he's going to own the Muppet trademark and the character names, which are also the real names, right, of the Muppets, but the, you know, they're sort of publicly uh, marketed character names, and he's going to replace them with the Muppets, who are, you know, the evil Muppets, who are dirty and, you know, say bad words, and... Uh, uh, all this stuff, right? And so, like, this is kind of an allegory of, of like, the worst fears of all the original Muppet people that, like, here, you know, uh, Jason Segal and uh, Nicholas Stoller are going to come in and um, and sort of turn them into the turn them into the Muppets. I, I, they incorporated that kind of cleverly into their um, uh, into their script. You say specifically they they kind of use bad language they kind of are not the family friendly ideal i mean with like the implication or whatever because there's the whole kind of avenue q thing that you know they have this muppet style puppets in this extensively kind of sexual and graphic and profane musical uh, or or meet the feebles or you know Which aren't really in the movie, but there's definitely part of the overall zeitgeist, right? And I think when we see the evil Muppet, you kind of know what they're talking about, that there's these yeah. like sketchy other Muppets. But it's also – I don't think that, that Frank Oz – maybe Frank Oz feels that way now, but I never would have thought of the chief aesthetic value of the Muppets back in the day being like being family-friendly. Right, because they were much more they were much more liberal in their in their. They started out on Saturday Night Live, like season one of Saturday Night Live had recurrent Muppet sketches, sort of the way that Rob Smeagol does cartoons nowadays. That's awesome. But you know what they had was like a kind of a wide eyed quality. You know what I mean? Yeah, a a naive quality that um, and they something that that uh, in this interview with the with the writers with uh, Siegel and Stoller, uh, they said that like the Muppets don't want to destroy even their enemies. You know. They want to like reform right. their enemies in the evil in the uh, like in the first Muppet movie. The guy who wants to turn Kermit into frog's legs, like uh, Kermit <laughs> is, you know, Kermit is like, well, you know, have you really thought about how how it would feel if you yeah. were turned into? Like, haven't you ever had legs? a dream? Yeah. <laughs> oh man. I'm yeah, it's it's. A- Sorry, I was just gonna say the way that the uh, bad guy is reformed is via a brain injury. Is that right? Because I, I now work with people with kind of long-term uh, brain damage and the rest of it. I thought that was a little kind of, I don't know, I'm, I'm indicating with my hand, not sure whether it's okay, because I'm not sure. How to put it in- he wrote an overthinking article way back in the day about miraculous bumps to the head. Yeah. <laughs> and then yeah. Under that. I almost almost feel like the Muppet movie, yeah, like, oh yeah, it is is a miraculous bump to the head. And I do feel like the movie sort of ends um, kind of before it's over. And they kind of like 
bounce off the water a couple times before coming to a stop. <laughs> you know, it's like it's like because uh, yeah, the whole thing. Do I really care that he got hit in the head? I mean, of course, if he got hit in the head, what he's more likely to have is like horrible enterograde amnesia <laughs> or just like hemorrhaging, and he can't like look at a bright light, or he's afraid all the time and it's very sad. But that would be a horrible way to end the movie. <laughs> like, oh my god, would that be like Tex Richmond is in a halfway house where he's like being cared for by a long term care nurse paid for by his insurance. And where, like, if he if he only watches halfway through Wheel of Fortune, or else he just starts freaking out, like that would not be a good thing. Like that would be very sad. <laughs> yeah, and I'm hoping that from the laughter there that I'm kind of hitting a little bit of the deep sadness that's associated with treating like really, really chronic, difficult cognitive problems caused by trauma, because um, it is not fun. It is like capital N, capital F, not fun. It's like you're. <laughs> I can't think of anything farther away from the Muppet Show than like actually treating brain trauma patients. Um, the craziness there is thoroughly metaphorical. It is not a something. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> you know, oh, so man. it's like it snaps him out of his attitude. It's not really brain damage. It's a, a shock or whatever. Yeah. Right, and he also he also got the idea for the flux capacitor. there there is a possibility that you could experience a change in your personality by having a stroke right or by having a trauma um but this is not the kind of thing that we should encourage people to do like this is not like a solution to life's problems um i mean there are documented cases of people changing their outlook on things but like also like the estate of tex richmond meaning the giant bear in this case could probably (laughs) sue and claim that like his voiding of the contract is in fact uh not valid because of the brain injury Right, which is totally legit. Yeah, definitely. Didn't they actually lose? Like, didn't they not get the money fast enough or whatever? You know what? I actually thought the movie was going to end in a very different place where it turned out that – I mean, in, in a way, it seems con- conflicting because the telethon turns out not to be a success, that they don't raise nearly as much money as they needed to. Um, yeah. But then they walk out of the theater, and the the sidewalk is absolutely mobbed with thousands of people who have come out to support the Muppets. So there's this sort of message is like, are the Muppets – less popular than they thought they'd be or actually more popular than they thought they'd be or or maybe popular but like not by people who will give them money i mean one thought that (laughs) struck me now is like maybe all these muppet fans i mean you know what Uh, come to the end of the story and all of a sudden you see all the people in your life who loved you like it's almost like they died and like this is like their afterlife, right? Where they have uh, adoring Muppet fans who kind of like carry them off into a dance number. It does have <laughs> like a sort of last episode of Lost feeling to it. Uh, <laughs> I, I right. didn't see that. Well, it doesn't have a first episode of Lost feeling to it. There's no polar bears. There's just regular bears. But anyway. <laughs> He's not a polar bear at all. He's a grizzly. Um, yeah, nobody it, it is interesting that, that they lose the name, they lose their rights to be Muppets. Um, and then Kermit sort of like gets up and, and tells them, he's like, well, we're going to walk out that door with our heads held high as a family because that's what we are. And there's sort of a feeling, it's like, you know, like we, we, we can die with pride now because we at least like sort of like we, we stood together and we fought for who we were. And then, of course, it, it, it becomes very happy at the end. And I'm sure that if, if you wanted to go really dark, you'd come up with an interpretation that they are, in fact, dead, that that whole final dance sequence on the street is a dream, um, and that, uh, that, te- yeah. and that, that they, were, they were killed in a collapse of their theater, which is not structurally sound after decades of fact. <laughs> right, I love it. <laughs> after the big one struck the San Andreas yeah. fault, right? 
It's like, guys, we're going to go out there as a family, and we're going to go beat up the Salvadorans and find out what they know. But as long as we hang together, (laughs) we're going to get out of this. Antoine Mitchell can't touch us. Not when we stick together. (laughs) Is is the message of the film, then, if you lose your intellectual property rights, you shouldn't fight back against the evil tyranny that tries to take them from you just be a family and be content because you have still more to lose <laughs> cast down your bucket where you are yeah it's it's or, very or that if you lose your intellectual property rights you should throw a bowling ball at the new rights <laughs> and hope for the best so that's well, both i mean they were they were setting that up gonzo with the the yeah. swing and arm like Anton were... Chekhov would have loved that <laughs> <laughs> do not, yeah, do not swing a bowling ball in Act One unless you're going to fling it at Chris Cooper's head in Act Four. But um, no, like they were setting that up, and it happened at a totally inconsequential time in the movie, right? Like the the happy ending was already secure at that point because, like, even if they had lost the telethon, they'd won a still greater victory of shutting down Hollywood Boulevard, you know. Uh, and they between Crescent Heights and Highland, and uh, <laughs> you know, and having a big uh, crane helicopter shot of uh, thousands of adoring fans f- filling the streets, thronging, uh, thronging the Muppets, and and then Gonzo hits him with the bowling ball. I mean, it's not when it could be useful, like when he's trying to shut the electricity off. It's you know, yeah. <laughs> when, and, and I guess that gets at kind of some of the Muppets' uh, essential sweetness, which is that like they, you know they don't try to hurt anyone or when they do hurt someone it's not when it's it's not because it's expedient right right it's also a commentary on solving political problems with violence because it might seem like you have a very appropriate window where you can hit a guy in the head with a bowling ball and fix everything but that window can close very quickly and then all of a sudden you end up throwing bowling balls at people and you're not exactly sure why the movie is ending or what's going on (laughs) Uh, (laughs) but it's still nice it's still a good time uh, bowling balls. I, Gonzo was always my favorite as a kid. I loved Gonzo. I never really understood, not even understood, but like I never felt like I needed to intuitively comprehend what he was trying to accomplish, but he was awesome. <laughs> so there when you the go. Mu- yeah. When the Muppets, he was awesome for me for this, for this reason. When the Muppets were going to Hollywood to become stars, uh, they met Gonzo, you know, as they were hitchhiking or whatever across the country, and Gonzo was, uh, was saying, you know, you go to Hollywood if you want to take the easy way out. Uh, if you want to become a movie star and you want to do it the hard way, you go to Bomb Bay. <laughs> so that you was know, a nice little insight. It's interesting me. that the, the Muppets have always had this sort of adult humor embedded in it. Like way before it was, it was cool. Aladdin made it cool to sort of work in all these like adult references. And I mean, I think I, I like that this movie had like little little touches of this sort of dark, twisted humor. I like the the chickens doing the CeeLo Green cover. Um, yeah, <laughs> that was amazing. I was really surprised to see that in the mainstream entertainment because it seemed pretty high yeah, concept. Exactly. But yeah. in a way, I think I think that, or actually, the, the thing that was really high concept was the crazy barbershop quartet. Um, never mind. Uh, cover. Oh, that was like, amazing. That was weird, right? Yeah, yeah. Very strange. There was very, there were very little like Muppets in space kind of conventional Muppet sketch work in this movie. There were these like very strange concepts and set pieces, <laughs> definitely. Yeah. Um, and it, what, what is it saying? Like, what is it saying? Because those are one of them is a contemporary song. One of them is a song that that. The Muppets were already old when they made the song, which was like 20 freaking years ago. Um, I'm not quite, not exactly 20 years ago, but close enough. Um, So, I mean, I get, why are they singing the songs while they're doing it? Are they trying to sort of show how a Muppet sensibility can apply to different kind of cultural moments that you can Muppetize these different things or? 
I mean, one um, of the, the weird things about the Muppets is like, or, or certainly about the Muppet Show, which like, if this movie is about one Muppet property, it's very much about the Muppet Show, and in fact, they they recreate the whole opening theme pretty uh, pretty religiously. Is that like the the entertainment acts that are offered are very strange and very offbeat? Like the yeah. the big f- final act that Walter comes out and do is this very operatic whistling number. Yeah, this whistling. Do we know solo. what song that is? Uh, Did anybody say right, it in the theater? <laughs> no, what is it? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I have no idea what it is. It's very, it's very beautiful. But right, so then you have like the the barbershop quartet uh, doing grunge number. Um, right, you have Gonzo trying to throw a bowling ball uh, to knock a bowling pin off a guy's head, and it's like what the Muppets are offering as the sort of show within the show is very strange. And, and, and in fact, not really that similar to like what we perceive as Muppet humor, sort of like the, the, the actual Muppet movies and the actual kind of jokes that they tend to include in these. Right. I'm, 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 I'm really hunting down, trying to figure out, okay, the Whistling Caruso is an original song from the film The Muppets that's what, whistled really? by Walter. Yeah, it's an original song. So the, uh, the Whistling so, but apparently it's it's meant to be recall recall opera That's and classical music. And I mean, I yeah, think it's yeah. worth it's worth mentioning that it's not set up in any way that I can't recall earlier in the movie that Walter is sort of whistling to himself, and then he realizes at the end it's like, wait, I do have a talent. There's nothing earlier in the movie that implies that like he's going to come out and do this whistling number. Yeah, <laughs> you know exactly. And it's also, I mean, I think that was a cool insight too, because how many of us have been going to talent shows and been like, "Well, I feel like I'm good at entertaining people, but what is my specific talent that I can do at a talent show?" And I feel kind of stymied by that choice sometimes. Um, and of course, you look around at the actual Muppets. I think there's a moment where Walter is trying to worry about what his talent is, and then it cuts to Fozzie, and you're like, "Fozzie doesn't have a talent. <laughs> like, Fozzie is yeah. just lovable." Um, and then all of a sudden, he busts out this amazing thing. But um, right, I mean that's that's the thing. In, in a way, the Muppets are not very talented. That Fozzie's supposed to be a comedian, but yep. I mean, nobody really thinks he's funny. Gonzo's supposed to be like kind of like a stuntman, but nothing ever works. Yep, Kermit is the leader, but he's really uh, not confident and is constantly having yeah. crises of conscience. Like, so like, really so like by by conventional standards, that they're not they're not very successful performers. But right. like their 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 performances often backfire in entertaining ways. Yeah. I guess, <laughs> like, um, and like it's sort of the, the chaos that that that's what people sign up for. Both sort of like in a in a meta sense, like watching them try to pull up the show, but also like even the people within the movie, they seem to enjoy like not Fuzzy's jokes, but like Jack Black's agony at having to listen to them. Yeah. And it's sort of like it's almost like they succeed in spite of their own lack of talent. Mm-hmm. I can't think of a better description of the Muppet Show or of the Overthinking It podcast. What what a great way for us to go out. <laughs> we have some. We're great... not sure we can sign off on that. Yeah, yeah. I feel a little hurt, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what? We're moving right along. We're loose and fancy free. <laughs> yeah. it, no, it's it's time to stop the music. It's time to dim the lights. Uh, it's time for another episode of the Overthinking Podcast uh, to end. But uh, that means it's time for your part to begin. If you want to join the conversation, you can email podcastoverthinkingit.com. Uh, I had some great emails to read. We'll we'll push them to next week because uh, this was a great conversation. Uh, you can call or text two zero three two eight five six. Or you can join the always awesome conversation uh, on the show notes of the site. Thanks very much to the panelists, and thanks for Timothy. T- thanks to Tim Swan, who, who uh, you know, our special um, correspondent. And uh, you can find Tim's Psychomedia podcast at Psychomedia uh, P S Y C O. 
M-E-D-I-A. No H. No H. If you put the H in, you will go to a bad place. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that seems like quite a tightrope to make your listeners walk every day. <laughs> Psycho. Well, maybe we could have researched it better. P-S-Y-C-O-M-E-D-I-A dot WordPress dot com is uh, Tim's URL. Tim, uh, thanks for being on the show tonight. And uh, you can find us during the week, the same place as always, www.overthinkingit.com, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It probably Well, Statler, you know what the best thing about that podcast was? What was it, Waldorf? As if you did a Muppets episode and no singing. You've had a musical episode practically every of the last few weeks. What? Did someone call Javi Feierstein? Manu <laughs> 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 <laughs>